Hi, I'm Sasha, and I beat the Austin Pass by doing things that surprise people. Everyone thinks that I'm a hardcore hippie, but really I'm a hardcore capitalist. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to remind you that you can be successful without being a dick. I know, shocking, but so few people do it. My guest today is Sasha Celestial One, and she's the CEO and co-founder of Olio, an eco-conscious startup that's raised over $50 million in funding. Her concept is pretty simple. We throw away so much good food, in fact, up to 40% globally. Her app makes it easy to give away leftover food for both individuals, think something like Uber, etc., and also for companies at scale like supermarkets. Are you going on a trip? Well, just take a picture of the food in your fridge and don't let it go to waste. Somebody in your area can come pick it up and you can save everybody a lot of trouble. Do good, feel good about yourself and the world in the process. Sasha has received numerous awards, including a UN Momentum for Change Award and so many more big, big, big things. But more than that, she has a really unique path to success that I just know you'll find deeply inspiring. So here's Sasha Celestial One. Well, that is such a cool way to begin. A hardcore iffy, but really I'm a hardcore capitalist because historically people have thought that those two things are at odds. Some people yep. have even criticized the actual hippie generation for going back on their ideals and for abandoning them. That's the general belief. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you've summarized that dichotomy and that you feel that you're one <laughs> and not the other is a very fascinating way to start. So can you briefly tell us about your mission mm -hmm. and what it is that you do now mm -hmm. and how you got there? So I'm the founder of an app called Olio. We've got about 6 million people all around the world using our, um, our app to share or give away things they no longer need, food, household items, or to lend out um, things that they have in their home that they don't use very frequently, air mattresses, tennis rackets, you get the idea. Um, and as much as I said that I'm a capitalist, I am trying to create an alternate economy where the currency is sort of goodwill within the community and, and not hardcore Cold, cold, hard cash. Um, and we've got about a million items added a week. And um, yeah, we're on a mission to reduce waste of all kinds in the home and local community at scale. And you have succeeded in that. The numbers of what you've already been able to achieve are just staggering billions of gallons of water saved, or it's liters perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the food waste saved is incredible. So what is the general idea behind how does Olio work? So we've got, I mean, you're right. I, every day I look, it's sort of ticked up another million meals we've saved, which is pretty, pretty awesome. So we're on track for about 50 million meals this year alone um, that would have been sent to landfill, but instead have um, fed people, everyday regular people. Um, and the way we do that is twofold. First, um, everything that's shared on Olio is uh, shared by an individual in their community with another neighbor in the community. So you take a picture, add a description, click upload, and then it alerts people nearby. Hey, Sasha's added bread, tomatoes, whatever. Um, and if someone wants it, then they simply send a private message, say, I can pop around, pick it up, and they come over. And it's an it's a in real life transaction. Transaction as in everything's free, but still it's an exchange. Um, but we also have recruited about 100,000 volunteers from within the community, people who really um, want to make a difference by collecting unsold food from businesses. So the supermarkets, caterers, events, fast food restaurants, 
anywhere there's unsold food that can't be donated to charity that's still fit for human consumption, we um, arrange for members of our community who are food safety trained to go and we match them with those collection opportunities. They pick up that food, they bring it straight home, they add it to their app in the same way that they would with their own food, and then the neighbors pop around to pick it up. And that is our Food Waste Heroes program, and that is just bringing in so much food into our sort of sharing platform, and it really is driving our growth. And you have something like 4,000 of these Food Waste Heroes at the moment? You have many, many. We've got, we have 46,000 who have registered and taken the training, but each week... Each week, there's about 11,000, maybe 12,000 collections from from stores. Incredible. Um, so. so it's taken off, basically. And if, if, if I put some bread, to use your uh, some Tesco bread, since you're based in the UK right now, somebody yeah. comes and picks it up, you said an ex- it's an exchange. Is it an exchange, or is it just me gifting it to somebody? It's, it's just gifting it to someone. Um, and, and, yeah, so there's no money or exchange that takes place. Um, and half of all food listings are requested in under 20 minutes. So it's a very quick experience. Um, things come on and off the app very quickly. Um, and that's because we've built a really dense network of users. So um, usually the person who's coming to pick it up is just around the corner, they're across the street, which means that you can give away quite, um, you know, a place like London, people don't drive. They, that makes sense. In the U.S., I'm American, people do drive. And it actually does work, obviously not quite so quickly, in, in more sort of suburban and rural areas where driving is the norm. Um, and people just bake those journeys into going to the gym and going to the office and picking their kids up from school. And it just provides a little bit of, um, it's very satisfying to A, get some free food, right? Like we all love that. We're humans. We're hunter-gatherers. But equally, it feels really good to give something of nutritional value to someone else. That's why every culture in the world celebrates with food. So um, we're just connecting people to do that. And not every time do you want to stop and have a chat with your neighbor. Like I hide things in a safe spot a lot, um, especially non-food items that aren't perishable, just because I'm, you know, quite busy and it's just easier sometimes. But I love to have the chat and get the thank you. That connection, there's still a human connection. That's such a wonderful concept. And on your side, what's the business model? It is a business. It's not a nonprofit, right? Nope. We are definitely a business. We are venture capital backed. We've raised right. five rounds of funding, over $50 million. I saw um, and we, our business model is, the app is free, um, although we do have some 2 or 3% of our users become a supporter to support our mission, which means they pay you know, a couple dollars a month and they get status in the app. But the vast majority of our revenues come from our B2B solution. So, for the Food Waste Heroes program, all of the businesses that we partner with, they have net zero targets, they've got food waste reduction targets, and they know that they can't reach those without solving for end-of-day food surplus at their establishments or their stores. Um, and so they pay us to make sure that that food is eaten. Um, and that helps them off, off, not offset, it helps them avoid the carbon emissions associated with that and get closer to their environmental targets. So cool. Do you think that because you're in Europe, that there is more of a focus, like you said, on that net zero. Do you think that there, they place a higher priority on these types of initiatives than we do here in the U.S.? Yes and no. Um, it's still pretty early here, but I think there's probably more regulatory tailwinds, like accelerating, especially in Europe. Now with Brexit, actually, the U.K. is more like the U.S. Oh, with regards sorry. to regulation. Yes, that's right. That's a huge oh, no, faux no. pas. Oh, my goodness. No, no. 
No, that's all right. Uh, where should we still? That's one of the things I sort of miss about being part of Europe is that actually they're very, they are more focused there and they're more they're much more collectively conscious. I think about the environment, about waste, um, etc. But that said, just last week the SEC, um, I think, has mandated that public companies have to. Um, sort of report on their emissions. Um, and there's more and more sort of regulatory government or sort of industry level regulation that is going to accelerate um, the, the move of all businesses to sort of set their goals, set aggressive goals and, and to meet them. So it's, it's a matter of when, not if. So great. And you're uniquely poised to solve this problem in any country in the world, it seems like. Um, that's our goal. Um, our goal is to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis um, as fast and as broadly as we can. So we know that 40% of all food globally goes to waste, and that wasted food counts accounts for um, 10% of global carbon emissions. It's um, If it were a country, food waste would be the third largest polluter or contributor to the climate crisis after only China and the U.S. So it's really a big problem. Um, and most, wow. almost all of that food can be eaten. It's just about leveraging modern technology to get food where there's surplus to food where uh, someone's hungry, right? Um, and we're not trying to solve or address food poverty. Um, they're actually two very different things. Of course, some people who are in food, you know, in financially difficult situations benefit immensely from getting access to, to fresh food on oleo. But the reality is that you could feed all 800 million hungry people on the planet on less than a fourth of what is wasted just in the U.S. and U.K. alone. So we have way too much food. Unbelievable. But we do have two and a half billion people joining Earth um, and by 2050. And, and the only way um, that we're going to be able to feed them is by starting to redistribute the food that we already have. So this is really an, an inevitability as far as we're concerned. Well, that is so amazing. I love every single part of your mission. I support it wholeheartedly, using the system, working within it, but to dismantle it. Obviously, you have roots that are very different, and I want to get to that. But there's, before we go back to how it all began, you're in the UK. You've been there for, you said, 16 years, right? So, born and raised in the U.S. I, myself, I'm from Denver, Colorado. I lived in Europe for eight years. My partner okay. is Dutch. Where'd you so live? I lived Amsterdam? in Eindhoven, uh, okay. south yeah. of Amsterdam. But I also lived in Amsterdam for a couple years as well. Yeah. Yeah. Blew my mind. So, I've experienced at least a part of your journey, and then we came back uh, mm. here. So, you've seen both sides of the culture. You've changed a lot. Mm. I'm curious, before we dive into the origin story... What role has travel played, would you say, in your founding this company? Has it changed your perspective at all? Yes. I mean, I did grow up in a fairly sheltered rural part of America um, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That said, my dad is a massive hippie and a massive traveler, and he took us all over when I was about nine he put us in the van one day and we drove down to mexico and we spent six weeks there it's like no clothing and no plan but we just like met locals and lived with them so i've always had a very um adventurous um mindset i think that was instilled in me from from my parents and a lot of that included travel um and i think that when you see, and I've been all over the world, and I love traveling. Um, not, it's, been, it's been obviously not the same with COVID. And actually now I'm much more mindful of my um, carbon footprint than I used to be. So 
I'm hoping to go to France next week, for, for example, and I'm taking the train, I'm not flying. So it does, that, that has changed how I think about travel. But I think getting exposure to other cultures and seeing how um, happy people are like in places where they have so little. So from the, like, from Brazil, I can remember being in the favelas in Brazil and also slums of Mumbai and seeing people who are clearly what I, we would consider destitute with almost no possessions, but just braiding it with joy. Um, and like, I think that that's a, that kind of, that's the kind, when I think about travel and how it's impacted me, it's those memories that have really made me do two things. One, I've become quite anti-consumerist. Like I just have learned that I don't like buying things. I feel guilty when I buy things. I don't enjoy owning possessions. I feel like they're a burden. So I've just been much more minimalist. I haven't bought new clothes in over 10 years. Everything is used or secondhand, pre-loved, depending on how you want to market it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, I think that when I do ha- what I do ha- with, my dis- with my disposable income is very experience-based, like in going to the theater and investing in going to see um, VIP tickets for a concert and like splurging on something like that rather than buying stuff. I'm um, in a lot complete of that agreement with you. I'm in complete okay. agreement. The same way. No, I'm the exact same way. I, I viewed stuff. And I think if you move a lot, if you've made an international move, you're forced yeah. to pare down your stuff. When we moved, when I moved to Europe, I moved with nothing. When I moved back, got rid of an entire apartment worth of stuff. Me and my wife slimmed down to two suitcases, and that was it. We started all over again here in L.A. And when you've done that, it's yeah. really hard to look at stuff as a positive thing. It's yeah, just a yeah. burden. It's something that's a problem waiting to happen. So I feel the exact did you, same did way. Did you know that the average American home has 300,000 items in it? I did not know that. Yeah, it's, wow. If, if you Google it, it's quite well re- well sourced. Um, fact. I Actually, I haven't mentioned it, but um, we anyone can share non-food as well. So, you know, household, like toiletries, whatever, everything that you've got that... Uh, you don't want to go to the hassle of trying to sell on eBay, but I mean, maybe you can't donate it to local Goodwill, but it's still got some use, like 20 hangers or whatever. Um, and moving is one of the biggest use cases for using Olio because you can sort of just take a picture of your house. And you're like, I've got too much stuff Anything. to list. I need someone to come and like take it away, please. It just makes it's like an estate it. sale, but it's free. Yeah. I like it. That's That's such an amazing thing. So, yeah. Um, have you changed your personal habits in other ways? Are you vegetarian or are there other things that you personally have believed in? So I'm born and raised a vegetarian. Um, so I've never eaten meat actually. Um, which is quite unusual for someone in Iowa, but my parents were and are sort of big hippies and did things very differently. So I had quite an alternative childhood. Um, I, I cycle everywhere. I don't have a car. Um, of course, you know, sometimes you need to take an Uber or public transportation, but I don't, I don't drive. I don't want to drive. Um, of course, I'm in a city, so it's a little easier to do that. Um, but um, again, for me, I did have a car when I lived in California for about two years, and it stressed me out so much. Um, it's like another yeah. thing that you have to be responsible for. You just got to worry for. about it, yeah. Yeah. Um, what else I do? I mean, I'm very much at the beginning of trying to figure out how to keep the joy of travel. I've got a nine-year-old and I really want him to see the world. But how can I do that in a responsible way that's not sort of jet setting for short weekend breaks all around Europe, which is sort of what I did when I first moved to the UK. Um, I mean, I do a lot of, um, well, plastic is a big enemy in our house. So very little plastic in this house. And 
lots of, you can't see over there, but I buy a lot of things in bulk rather than buy individual use items. Um, obviously, I never have any food waste. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, we're very much in alignment. That's why I try to find people like you, because I'm trying to find people who believe in this business component, but also mm -hmm. have this ethical or moral component uh, to prove that you're out there. So this is enormous validation for me when I meet yeah. someone like you. It's like, okay, there are other people out there who have these values, who have this belief system that not a there whole are. lot of people are talking about. So it's super interesting mm -hmm. for me. So you say you grew up as a poor hippie uh, in Iowa. Mm -hmm. You started a series of micro businesses. You always had an entrepreneur slant. Yeah. So My how did your journey begin? Okay. Um, they started a wholesale a cooperative, um, which is a wholesale herbs and spices and natural foods product business. Um, and so that took a long time to be successful. And in the sort of limbo years, when we didn't have very much money at all and borrow money from the bank and all of that kind of stuff. Um, my mom, especially because my parents separated and I was the oldest of six kids, um, just was a real hustler. Like she, she's the one who taught me how to have a million sort of side gigs on the go. Um, and we had like, you know, year round yard sales of all different varieties, like at home. Um, and I, yeah, as a, as a kid, I, I used to braid people's hair at recess in exchange for money. I used to um, collect all the tin cans at the lake and then tin cans, that sounds so British, <laughs> all, the, all the pop cans um, and like hundreds of pounds worth of pop cans um, and we'd take them in the supermarket and cash them in. And um, there was just loads of, when I went to, um, at school, I would, I supplied the local the school cafe with my mom's candy and brownies and everything that I sold for 25 cents each. And there's just all these little things that I did to earn money. Um, I love, like, I'm not very creative in any other way except trying to figure out how to turn, like, create something of value that someone else, create something that someone else values and, and then have a fair exchange for that. Like, I find that process very satisfying. That's so amazing. And then you followed up with formal education. You went to a little poor hippie school known as the Stanford Graduate School of Business. <laughs> yeah. My, my person, I often say my personal form of rebellion um, well, because I do, I just grew up without a lot of financial security, um, and it's all you know, love like a house full of love, but like just not a lot of stability. And I really craved like a, a normal, quote unquote, um, financially secure. Um, you know, my mom didn't have a job, um, and for me, I was like, that just seems not how I want to do things, right? Like I want to like a career. So I, you know, I studied really hard. I studied economics at the University of Chicago, and then. I spent, I went before Stanford, I was at uh, Morgan Stanley um, in New York, which was a phenomenal experience, um, although it was during 9-11, which um, um, was depressing, obviously, yeah. for obvious reasons, right. and a bit traumatic. Um, but I was sort of pursuing a very uh, sort of risk-averse corporate career, which I did for 13 years. Um, and it wasn't until I was on maternity leave from American Express here in London that I, um, I got the entrepreneurial bug again. Um, I found myself as an expat, um, pretty much as a single parent, um, without any support from a childcare perspective. And the, you know, in a big city like London, actually there's a real shortage of childcare and there's certainly no flexible, affordable childcare, which is what I needed. So I opened London's first, um, pay-as-you-go childcare provider that provided like nursery level sort of quality care, but on a flexible pay-as-you-go basis. 
Um, and it was just, I wasn't making no money. I had free childcare. I was making no money, but it was the most fun thing I'd done in a decade. Um, and I really did feel like, like it was just so, I wanted to get up at four in the morning, not because my six month old was getting me up at four in the morning, but because I couldn't wait to, like, I had all these ideas for ways that we could get, spread the word and get new parents in and activities we could do. And, and I just, it was such a, I look back on that time with a lot of fondness because, um, yeah, I was just reigniting what it is that I enjoyed doing, which is creating things and business. Mm-hmm. So I love that, that, that process It's something I've heard before. I get it. So you say, I need financial stability because I'm sick of living this way. I've felt that in my life. I understand that completely. So describe the, the journey from the corporate life to this. Was it something that was constantly eating away at you for the 13 years? Was it something that you noticed was a problem? Or were you able to just say, I need to do this as a stepping stone to get myself financial freedom and then I can do that? How did you feel about it during that time? So I, I think I, I felt conflicted. On the one hand, I was really valued being financially independent. I valued having disposable income so I could travel, so I could shop, things that I cared about in my 20s, I would say. And also being able to spoil my friends and family back home in Iowa when I went home. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I'm just, you know, little things like I have, I have some tattoos and like that back then you had to hide them, right? Like now it doesn't matter because time's moved on. But um, I just felt a bit like a fish out of water. Like I wasn't bringing my authentic self to work. Um, and, you know, I definitely never woke up every on a Monday saying at four o'clock in the morning saying, I can't wait to yes! sell credit cards. Let's go. To the finish. <laughs> I mean, like, the, not, not the finish. I mean, like, to the fins. Actually, they're not finished. To the fins. To fins. Because <laughs> I, I was responsible for 11 Northern European markets. That's why I right. say that. Um, but that said, I don't think if it wasn't for, I'm not sure I would have taken the plunge um, pre-becoming a mother when the calculus just dramatically changed. So I just did the math um, because my job required a lot of travel and my partner wasn't supportive. And my only option was to hire live and help, right? Because I was going to have to take overnight trips. And, but that, I I just started doing the math. I'm like, this isn't how I want to, that's not the kind of mother I want to be. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how I could be away to do my job and still be the kind of mother that I wanted to be. So it forced my hand. Um, and it made me reevaluate my priorities. And I realized I was very happy take earning next, just enough to live on, really, which is why I stopped buying new clothes and doing a, cut back on a lot of my expenses. If it meant I had full autonomy over my time um, and got to choose when and how I spent that time with my son, didn't mean I didn't want to do anything. You know, I can remember being like seven days post birth, um, mowing the lawn, you know, I'm a very active, high energy person. Um, it just meant that I wanted to do things that were within my own domain. All right, folks, it's time for a quick commercial break. Now, I've been doing this for a very long time, and let me tell you, folks, it's a pretty thankless job to create another podcast in a sea of about a trillion of them. Who the hell cares? So I'm going to use the sponsorship time that will one day be filled for tens of thousands of dollars, I'm sure, by brands like Patagonia to plug my own ethical marketing company, Aloha Marketing. That's A-L-O-A Marketing. 
We specialize in helping mission-driven startups, nonprofits, and people and organizations with a message worth sharing from e-commerce websites with thousands of products to redesigns to social media management, content creation, video, audio like this piece you're listening to right now, to SEO, to learning management systems, and much more. We handle all aspects of your brand and marketing in the digital age. So if you are in need of assistance or if you know someone who does, visit aloamarketing.com. That's aloamarketing.com. And now enough of that nonsense. Back to the show. Well, that what you just said gave me goosebumps right there. Because there's so much power. I hope people rewind that moment and listen to that because there's so much power in that thought. And that's a conversation that so few people are having, certainly in the business world, reclaiming time, saying, I'm going to not buy new clothes so that I can have this other thing that's more important. And in a society where more, 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 more is always the answer, traveling more, the people I look up to, they're, they're DJs, they're artists, they're flying all over the world. It's just more, more, more. There's never a thought about what about raising my kid or what about being home that we just don't hear that. And somebody's yeah. saying, let's scale back so yeah. that we can yeah. focus on what's really important. There's, free, there's freedom in scaling back. I felt more free um, in scaling back and extending my own personal runway from a financial perspective, but also just a, a career perspective and giving myself that space for, um, for the first time in you know, nearly 15 years to figure out what I wanted to do, where I wanted to add value. Um, yeah, I mean, when you and your wife had two suitcases move back to the U.S., yes. that's probably what the lightest, not just metaphorically, but also you know physically, you might have felt. Yes, it was. And it was stressful, but it's funny how that works. And also the Europe-American difference we had gotten so used to living in the Netherlands, you don't need to earn any money to survive. Just mm. none. My first mm. job was teaching English. It was part-time. I was making a grand total of 1,000 euros per month, and it was mm. half of a day, half of the weeks. So it was mm. I was barely working at all. And our rent, even though it was just right across the street from a train station, the most desirable part, fifth story, beautiful view, 700 euros a month flat, just flat. And there was nothing yeah. you could do, no matter how much gas or water or electricity used, there was nothing you could do to raise that a euro. So yeah. that was a known thing. Yeah. So despite earning absolutely nothing, we never ran out of money. I could go out to eat all we wanted. We could drink all we wanted. We could do all of the things that we wanted to do. And then we came to America and I had, I lived my whole adult life. I went to Europe right after I graduated. Okay. So I came back kind of expecting that things would be sort of the same. And our mm -hmm. world was just completely rocked as we learned that to live here, you need to earn, I would say conservatively, mm -hmm. 10 times the amount of money to yeah. live the same style. That quality of life. life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 10 times. Yeah, and I, that's, that's not a joke. That is a literal number that I believe is true. I lived in New York for six years and um, I love New York. You, but to have the same quality of life, I would need to earn way multiples on what I'm yes. earning now. And it is true. Um, and I'm, there's a lot of different factors in that. Um, obviously, there's the social net. Like, we've got the NHS here. We've got free access to, like, healthcare, education. Yep. Like, basic needs are met for everyone, which is, once you've experienced that, you never want to go back. I know. Um, but also, there's, um, like, the cultural infrastructure is for the most part 100% free museums are free there's free concerts there's all of this stuff to do yeah. there's also just like public places to like grab 
grab a six pack and hang out and like talk to other people in a blanket. It's much more sort of fluid, I think, um, um, where, yeah, it's a lot less about like you, you're, you're absolutely right. You can, you can have so much fun on a budget in Europe once you get yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, once yeah, you got to get there and go through the immigration pro all of that, which is its own separate episode. Yeah. I feel, but yeah, that th that's that makes it hard, and I think so many people are limited in what they can do and what kind of good that they can bring to the world by these financial constraints. Because I'm well aware, as somebody who spends a lot of time preaching, finding more ethical or moral ways of earning a living, or just trying to yeah. think about it. Period. I'm well aware that a lot of people are in a financial situation that makes that thought not possible. And if you're yeah. worried so much about how am I going to pay the bills this week or this month and you don't you don't know how you're going to keep the gas yeah. turned on, you don't have the luxury of thinking how can I solve the 40% food waste problem because that's yeah. the farthest thing. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You just yeah. don't have the energy. So I'm very aware of that. And I guess my message isn't so much targeted at those people as targeting the people who can and the people who should and the people who don't. Yeah. And it's interesting that people can make themselves, they can move themselves out of one category into another, in some cases, mm -hmm. if they're willing to make a change to their own lifestyle. And that is yeah. perhaps the hardest sell. Yeah. Generally. I think if, you, if you've gotten, of course, if you're, you know, like struggling to feed your family, like deciding, you know, thinking about sort of frolicking around Europe with, is not, you're, you're so far from your mind, but, um, but what I would say is, um, that if you've got a niggle of doubt that how you're spending your time, like if you just got this like unmet need in you, that's sort of like a niggle or a bit of dread or existential dread, like try and scratch it because worst case scenario, you can always go back. You can always go back. Yes. I was saying you can always go back, but also, um, we're all so busy and it's, it's, it, you have to, if you want to remain open to opportunity, like you have to have the time and space to be opportunistic, which is really hard when you're working a full-time job and all your time is allocated. So if you do an audit of your time and your money, your finances, and you just figure out what you can cut back, that still makes you feel like, okay, life's good. I feel safe, but you cut back, then that will free up time and, and finances that can then like just give you the space to be open-minded and opportunistic um, to explore something different. And I just think that if you don't cut out some time and carve out some time, then it's almost impossible to make decisions that might put you on a different trajectory. And so there is some pruning that needs to be done mentally, but also just with time and money so that you can, you know how you prune a tree and then, and then it grows. You get, you get, you get that it grows. Exactly. The, the, that is not a great analogy, but I can picture it now. <laughs> yes. And you did that, and you were able to start one thing, and that gave you the idea. You started the childcare, and yeah. you thought, okay, there's a part of me that I can unlock in so doing. There's a piece yes. of me that has been laid dormant, that was never absent, but maybe dormant for a long yes. time. Absolutely. So from that moment, how did you get to the idea of starting Olio? Now we can bring it full circle and say, yeah. how did that origin story begin? So I, um, it took about eight months to get um, the childcare uh, business up and running and self-financing. And then it turned into, I thought I would open lots of them, but to be honest, I ended up not being as interested in other people's kids as I thought I was. I wanted to do something a lot bigger. Um, so it turned out to be just a nice sort of passive income. 
Um, that didn't require my attention. And I also got to benefit from having free childcare. And I started actively looking for a much bigger problem to solve. And I really became, was become, had become really interested, profoundly moved by the climate emergency that we are facing and wanting to do something to, 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 to mitigate that. So Tessa is my friend from business school. and We've always been kindred spirits. Um, she grew up on a farm in North Yorkshire. You know, her parents still, dad still wakes up at three in the morning to milk the cows. Like she knows how much effort goes into growing the food that we eat or that we waste. Um, and she's as environmentally and commercially minded as I am. And so we teamed up together and started looking for a problem to solve that where we could sort of leverage our, our, our corporate and commercial skills and experience, but something for good, right? To make the world a better place, um, as cliched as that sounds. Um, and whilst we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do, she had an experience where she was moving house. And on moving day, she had some food she wasn't going to eat that she had assumed she would be able to pack because it was non-perishable. And the removal men said no. She actually went out in the street and tried to find someone to give it to. And it was cold and she had two kids and she couldn't find anyone. She had a ten- temper tantrum and cried and put it in her box, the boxes anyways um, when they weren't looking. And that was the genesis. That was the light bulb moment for her. And she told me that story. And I, I was like, that is obviously, I agreed. You know, there's an app for sharing everything. Why isn't there an app for sharing food? Um, and that was uh, February 2015. Um, and it was nine months or five months to the day later that we launched in the app store. Incredible. I love stories like that. Just that simple moment where you realize, mm-hmm. hey, why isn't there this? So I can imagine with food specifically, as humans and as society, we're very touchy about food and for good reason, food safety. Or How has that been a challenge for you, overcoming those hurdles, especially when you get bigger and there's more eyes and presumably mm-hmm. regulatory committees looking at what you're doing? Yes. So um, there's sort of two answers to that. I'll, I'll touch base on the food that is redistributed through the platform by volunteers, food that's donated by businesses. All of that activity is governed under um, food safety regulation, the same type of regulation that governs the sale of food from a business. Whether it's for free or it's done by volunteers, it doesn't matter. And, you know, food that's passed as used by its safety expiry date cannot be shared. So we have built a whole system that's based on science, um, um, a food safety management system. And we have worked very closely with the regulators and we go through a process of um, they audit us and they approve our program and we it involves training. It's very, very complicated. You can link out to it from our website if you're curious. But it's really robust. And um, we've had, on less than one hand, I can count the number of incidents we've had reported in, in, in 50 million meals. Um, on the other hand, we've got individuals who are sharing from their own, you know, you make too much chili and, you know, or you don't want to eat the entire cake you just baked. People are sharing home-cooked and homemade food. It can be opened, you know, there's, it's not governed by food safety regulation because it's in your individual home um, as, as an individual. It's no different than having someone over for a dinner party right? or like, or making a cake for a bake sale at school. And, and that comes down to uh, the fact that, um, and we have also had no incidents there. And that's because people are really good about not eating things that are going to, uh, that might not be good for them to eat. Like mm. if, you know, just generally speaking, people don't choose to eat things they think might look like dodgy. And actually, Food poisoning is not to under, we take it very safely, but it's actually 
an incredibly rare thing to have happen. Um, so we've got guidelines. We have training. Anyone in the app can report something they think looks inappropriate or maybe looks doesn't safe. It's automatically t- taken down. There's all this, all the things you would expect from any platform um, to ensure trust and safety. Yep, that makes sense. And generally, it's the people's responsibility, and generally, it's the business's responsibility. So technically, yes. and generally people can recognize. Speaking, yeah. And it's, it's our responsibility to make sure the volunteers know their food safety yep. inside and out. And that's about allergens. That's about cross-contamination. Like, it is, it's, 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 it's something that's quite serious. But, you know, in the same way that millions of businesses and restaurants manage to feed people all, every day, all day, without, like, massive amounts of... It's just training. It all comes yeah. down to training. <laughs> That's so good. All right. So crisis averted. There's no yeah. issue there. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now that you're into this, you've gotten some success. You've gotten big funding, over $50 million of funding. The idea yeah. has been proven time and again, and it's just yeah. growing like wildfire. Yeah. How has your personal life changed? How do you feel? Do you feel more energized? Are you happier than ever? Are you getting more stressed out as it gets bigger? Where are you today? Well, Today, which is pretty much seven years on, it's very different than it was in the beginning. Um, I mean, your startup is your baby. In the beginning, uh, the highs and lows, the highs and lows are the same, but they're just much more frequent in the beginning. You're still sort of like constantly feeling like at any minute, the whole thing could fall apart like a house of cards. Um, And like you have that sense of it's like when you're studying for a test you really care about it's like there's no such thing as too much studying like it's it's quite hard to switch off and in the early stages of of of, of your own startup or your own creative project or anything that's yours um that you're trying to nurture and like bring to life it's quite easy to be obsessive overwork get burnout. out and i certainly suffered some of that in the beginning although um being a second time founder and also just being you know i'm in my mid-40s now like starting to realize that life's short and want to enjoy the sunshine too, sort of kept things in check a bit, but my anxiety levels were a lot higher. Um, and now I can actually say um, we're at a very different point and I'm experiencing something new and that we've just grown quite quickly. We've grown the team now to over a hundred, started a um, little satellite office in Singapore and now in Mexico city. And I'm managing it team and um, that's bigger than I've ever managed before. And I, it's like new challenges. Um, but I feel very, I was saying this to someone yesterday. I was like, I feel very competent, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I feel very competent. And I think I, for, I think for a long time, I might've had some imposter syndrome or a bit of the fake it till you make it or God, I can't believe no one's figured out that I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm making it all up as I go along. And now um, having you know, now I have 10 years having run my own businesses um, or been a co-founder. Actually, I'm like, you know, what? I sort of do know what I'm talking about. And like, I can figure it out. And even if I don't know how to do it, I know who to ask or how to find it, to learn from other people's experience. And um, it's, it's quite a nice, nice place to arrive at. And I'm sure that this joy will be very short lived and something will come from left field and like knock me sideways and I'll have to figure out how to get back up again. But right now I'm feeling quite just energized and like there's a, we have a clear vision. I feel like we've got the resources and the right people to execute against it. Um, my main concern is the lack of urgency from the general public um, and many businesses yep. around the pace of, 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 of climate destruction and yeah. just 
complete blindfold, you know, yep. blinders on about what's going on and, and how in our lifetime, not just in our lifetime, in the next 10 years, the, the world's going to change a lot. And I don't know if we're ready for it, but I am, I'm, I'm, I'm babbling now, but I am insanely optimistic in general as a person. So I'd like to think what, that we'll find a way to keep our species alive. But I think generally speaking, it's, um, it's, it's um, heartbreaking, I, I find it, and also incredibly frustrating. It's just such general, widespread denial. Yeah, I completely agree. And that is that is the hardest thing. I mean, we don't know whether we can solve these problems or not. We're not sure whether we can win this battle or not at this point. But one thing I am sure about is that if we don't try to solve yes. these problems, we absolutely will not solve these problems. So I, if you yes. don't do what you're doing, and if people like you don't do similar things, that's why I'm making this show to, to support. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to support you people because yeah. without the attempt, we'll never mm. get there. Yeah. And we have yeah. to at least try because we, we're we smart yeah. when we put our minds to it. We can yeah. achieve amazing things when we put our minds to it. But if we don't even put our minds to it, that is the greatest tragedy. And we say, I'm just going to drop ship some more cheap, plastic crap that's going to break in five minutes going straight to the landfill because that's still the de facto business model for so many people who want to become entrepreneurs. They're not even thinking about what good can it do or what can I bake in at the beginning of this so that later it can achieve something if it works out. Nobody's even thinking about that. Yeah. So it's not enough people, not yet. Not enough, right, exactly. Some are. Absolutely. And also I just think... I mean, coming back to what I said earlier at the intro, the, my provocative intro, where yes. I said I'm a hardcore capitalist. Like, I, I, I am and I'm not. But what I do know is that money, how people choose to spend their money, is what is the biggest influence in terms of how businesses um, operate in order to um, sell you something to get that money. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like everything you buy is a vote for the world you want to live in. Just like everything you throw away is a vote for the world you want to live in. And the most, we're all a hundred percent empowered to spend our money in a way that helps to, even if you don't want to do anything, you can be thoughtful about how you spend your money. It doesn't mean you have to buy fancy organic fair trade, blah, blah, blah. Um, but like if you don't think a company is operating with, a healthy supply chain or they treat their customers fairly or, or I mean their employees fairly. It's like don't buy their stuff. Like period. Take vote with your dollar, vote with your pound. Um and I think that um is one of the things I find very frustrating is that there's just this like senseless like a regular, everyday all of us, mainstream individuals aren't um being conscious consumers. Mm-hmm. Now why do you think it's so tough for people to look at their life why do you think there's such an emotional attachment generally to these things is it just convenience what what would you describe it as that makes it so hard for people to question the little things that they might do generally mm. or not do i wish it's a so that's a million dollar billion dollar question there right uh, um or why do some people recognize the boat we're in and other people don't that's another question that's worth a billion dollars. It's, I mean, it's to, to, to answer with compassion, right? Yes. Because not assuming that it's not because it's willful ignorance. Um, it's probably because there's something else going on in someone's life that's just a higher priority um, that may be a source of more significant acute stress. 
like, and that it has, and that, you know, whether it's relationship stress or financial stress or, or health stress or some, you know, and, and that, you know, you sort of gravitate towards your time and energy and your brain and your brain power gravitates towards like, what's the most stressful thing in your life? And it's a lot of people who might not yet might be facing something that for them is a higher priority stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't been able to step away from that and then think about something that's as opposed to something that's right now a stress versus something that actually is going to be a stress in two years, five years when my kids are, when my grandkids, you know, and it's that time, that sort of time distance, like that immediacy of something, a threat that's facing you right now, whatever threat is in your life versus a future threat. It's quite hard to get your head around that. That would be just a random guess. Yeah. I think that's partly, partly it. And, I think also, certainly in this country, yeah, people feel so let down by the system around them. I think so many people feel really let down and not taken care of, of especially in America. People who did everything right and were punished for it or are still in debt or working three jobs. There's no safety net, no health care. Or the first time something happens, they get a crippling health care bill that bankrupts them and their family. So there's not a love, not a lot of love of giving back to that system. There's almost a hatred of that system. So say, why, yeah. why should I care about what happens to you all when you all have abandoned me when yeah. I needed help? So yeah. fine, give me the styrofoam plates, give yeah. me the plastic forks, give me the straws, give me the fast, give it all to me all the time. Yeah. In some cases, because you have to want to care about helping other people. You have to want to yeah. care about us getting through about this the as collective. well. Yeah. Yeah. You have to believe in yeah, that. Yeah, that, that individual versus the collective. I, yeah, it's in America specifically, there is a very, there's a very, it's a very individualistic society, which in some Extremely. ways has served it well, yeah. right, in terms of entrepreneurship and innovation and things like that. But that lack of uh, individual trumps collective, and um, therefore, when you're asking people to what may are perceived sacrifices, right, for the collective good. Like the math just doesn't add up. It's just cultural. Yep. It's just ingrained in you in a certain way, um, which does make me think that actually to really get cut through from a messaging perspective and actually encourage people to change their behavior, it might need to stop focusing on the collective good of the planet and our future generations and figure out how to make the messaging more about like immediate individual benefit, yeah. right. which ultimately probably comes down to financial taxing and financial reward of the behaviors that we want to see. And eventually we will, that will all be regulated because we won't have a choice. It'll be more expensive to put out the problems, the collective problems. And if there will be, there will be a currency, whether it's carbon tax or whatever, that somehow, you know, or whether it's, you know, um, having to pay more to have your waste taken away or your food, you know, at, at the household level. And which brings me back to why I am in some ways capitalist. Cause I do believe that money is in the world that we live in is like the biggest lever we have to influence behavior. Um, sadly at the corporate societal and individual level. And so probably going to need to find a way if we really want to fix this, to pay people to do the right thing and have the desired outcome and to, and to, and to, and to financially penalize people who choose to live their life in a way that is um, more harming the collective. And I, th- I think that the most powerful solutions are the most subversive, and yours is that. Because when people are confronted with certain no-brainer decisions, they mm. will do the right thing consciously or unconsciously. 
If I have yeah. extra food and I'm going on vacation and I just say, I don't want to throw this away, I can do this yeah. out of convenience or like yeah. your business partner yeah. who wanted to just move her food. Yeah. You can do something out of convenience in that yeah. moment, not realizing that you're contributing to the solution of yeah. the 40% food waste problem. So stuff like that seems to yeah. work. And that's why I applaud you and your ideas so much because Thank you're you. not framing it in the sense of, choose this more expensive deodorant versus a cheaper, <laughs> worse deodorant, which is yeah. the Whole Foods model. And there's so many yeah. things that are weird about that whole thing. But you're saying, hey, here's this thing you never thought of. We're solving that. Wouldn't it be more convenient if you did this? And then they yeah. can do that out of pure yeah. convenience yeah. and they're helping. And, and it's pure convenience. That. Plus it just feels really good. Right. Like, but you're starting that. That's the yeah. subversive element because yeah. they start it for one reason, but then later... Yeah. You've it locked them into good. a cycle where it feels yeah. good. And they say, that yeah. was nice. I liked giving my bread to that person. I liked yeah. baking a yeah. cake. I had a conversation yeah. with somebody, with a human being in my yeah. orbit that I Who never would have. a recipe. Exactly. Right. Someone I never would have been I left my house with. for yeah. once in two and a half years. For <laughs> And you don't have to. If you're busy, you could just leave it in a box. But yeah. Yeah. you could also meet somebody. Yeah. So, yeah. We are so social, again, tribal. We're a social, yeah. tribal species. And, like, we have come moved into these like nuclear individual pods and it's very counter it's a very recent phenomenon it's very counter to all of our evolutionary instincts and um you know sharing of resources in a community is as old as you know the human species so i, I think we're trying to bring back something that we a, a lost like way of behaving but in a modern trusted convenient mobile first way um and that's been why, we, why we've been successful is because people are like, wait a minute, I, you know, this, it's just I'm doing something that actually feels really natural and very satisfying. But it's, um, you know, it's not just going to the shop, buying something, eating half of it, throwing it away, doing it, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I, th I think that it's subversive, but actually it's the most natural thing ever at the same time. You're helping people get in touch with that part of humanity that we are... Yes systematically lost yeah perhaps by design perhaps by chance who knows yeah. well i i know i want to be respectful of your time we have a hard stop here so i want to leave the last word to you i want you to say what is the most unusual or contrary piece of advice that you feel or believe that you might give that's not mainstream at all my dad always said um you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose but you can't pick your friend's nose and I know it's ridiculous, but actually, I think that's quite good advice. Um, and, you know, I'll let your listeners unpack that. But, you know, it really just comes down to, like, you've got your own values and, you're, and, and you can decide how you behave and you can choose who to surround yourself with. But what you can't do is try and impose your own, val your own values on other people. That's the no-no there. So. That, that's amazing. <laughs> that is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. 10 out of 10 response. Again, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, consider me one more person who is a friend from across the pond at this point. I We have some people in California, so I'm expecting you to add some uh, bread or fruit or something non-perishable. There's not so many people, so start okay. with something that won't, won't, won't go off. <laughs> that sounds great. Yes, I would love to be a part of this mission. And again, I can't thank you enough for sitting and just telling your story. I think it's a fabulous story. I wholeheartedly support what you're doing and your mission. And you. I'm deeply honored that you would join me 
for this. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for, um, for thank you for your show and for spreading the word. So have a lovely uh, it's day. It's my pleasure. You as well. And the podcast Bye. is officially over. 